This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The problem is um, the refugees, when they come here, they came with high expectation. But when they reach here, they found things at the contrary of what they heard, where they came from. And the big challenge we have is time. We don't have time. This is Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Greg Gordon. This is the show to listen to if you want to know about the global refugee crisis and the causes and consequences of war. Ravi and I work at the International Rescue Committee on humanitarian innovation, thinking about how we can design different product services and service delivery mechanisms to enhance humanitarian response. We are thrilled that you are listening to this show, and we would love to hear more from you. Here's how you can get in touch. You can tweet us. I'm at Grant M. Gordon. And I'm at Argo Murphy. Make sure to use the hashtag DisplacedPodcast. We have a ton of conversations over on Twitter, so come get in touch and drop a note. Um, we'd also love to hear from you via email. You can get in touch with us at displacedatrescue.org. And finally, please leave a review. It helps us grow. Uh, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a series on refugee resettlement, and so far we've had some really exciting guests. We've had Grant Gordon's PhD supervisor, uh, Jeremy Weinstein. I'm sure he'd love you to be introduced. You know he's going to be introduced like that. <laughs> he, the, the most eminent position he held, who also happens to have held incredibly high positions in government and is a professor at Stanford. And he talked to us, amongst other things, about how data can be used to resettle refugees in a much smarter way and place them in the right location. We also talked with Congresswoman Ilan Omar, who herself is a resettled refugee. This was a really interesting conversation in which Congresswoman Omar really set the table on how to think about policy for resettled refugees. Today we're talking to our colleague Dada Balabuila, who was a caseworker at the IRC and is also a refugee who was resettled himself a few years ago. And while we've got a great sense from Jeremy and from Ilhan about the big picture, about how the resettlement systems emerge over the last 20, 30 years and how we can change the politics, I think Dada is going to give us a much more uh, grassroots sense of how refugees uh, experience resettlement and what the practical challenges are of getting refugees into this country and getting them to thrive. It's oftentimes rare to get people who've had the life experience then providing the services to people who have those life experiences share their insights on a system. And that's one of the real reasons that we are excited to chat with Dauda today. I think it's an area where sometimes really, really small things make a difference. So in the first 30 days when a refugee is resettled, they have to do all sorts of things like register with various bits of government bureaucracy, figure out how to get a home or try and get access to jobs. And sometimes little things like not having bills translated into their own language can mean that they end up in debt. And so some of the innovations are not, you know, are not rocket science, they're not dramatic, but they can make quite a big difference to people's lives. And what I'm looking forward to talking to Dada about is the actual detail of the experience that refugees go through. One of the really interesting things when you compare service delivery of humanitarian services in other countries, and this is just from my personal experience, um, kind of working in different places around the world. Uh, humanitarians who are working in different countries tend to have um, 
experience in operations, policy, some sorts of programs, but but aren't really social workers in the way that you oftentimes see in the United States. One of the things that was surprising for me in, in starting to work on resettlement was how much of a kind of social service delivery um, system this is and how dominated that is by a caseworker model and social worker model. I think what's interesting about Dada's personal experience is it illustrates exactly why refugee resettlement matters. A very common question is, why can't the countries where the refugees fled to just um, keep them? And why can't we pay for those countries to do so? But Dowder's story is a really good example of how often conflict spills over into neighbouring countries. It's often the case that those um, countries where the refugees are first fled to are not necessarily a safe place for refugees, given the way in which the conflict um, spills over. And this is really common in um, places where there are regional politics at play. And as you see here, the Congolese government has actually been notoriously known for persecuting uh, political dissidents who are living in second-stop countries. You've seen similar engagements by Rwanda and Burundi who've pursued this strategy. And, and, and really, it's pretty global. And so, and so it's something to keep in mind as one of the reasons that resettlement actually exists. It's because these people are often being pursued in the countries where they have then landed. Um, one of the things that I'll say kind of from a personal note, and I, and I mentioned this before, is I used to be a country of origin expert for the Democratic Republic of Congo, making the case for asylum seekers here in the United States um, to determine whether they were actually being politically persecuted. And one of the things that is just incredibly difficult is to prove this with a level of confidence in a court of law, which was my experience. And you'll hear in the timeline that it took Dowda to actually get resettlement some of those similar processing challenges. Dad, we're going to focus on resettlement today, but let's start actually with your own personal experience, because before you actually worked for the International Rescue Committee, you were displaced yourself. Can you just say a little bit about how you ended up being displaced from the DRC and how you ended up getting into the, the US? Yeah, uh, the problem is uh, I was an activist, po political activist in Congo. And uh, um, for the political reason, I fled my country on 2000. And I went to Kenya, passing by Zambia and Tanzania. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of applying for resettlement and um, and what that kind of 12 years before you were resettled looked like in terms of that process? Yeah, um, the problem is uh, when you are a refugee, you reach uh, an asylum country. The first thing to do is to go to UNHCR. And uh, the process will start from there. And it's a very long process. When you register, they will give you an appointment maybe after four months. After four months, you go there. Uh, maybe you'll not do the interview. They will give you another appointment for two or three months and so on. And uh, after, after two years and a half, I was rejected because I came from... Uh, uh, Congo, passing by Zambia, Tanzania, and uh, Kenya. And uh, they told me, okay, you have to go back to your first country, which was Zambia. I don't have money, I have nothing, and I don't know what to do. I stayed uh, in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, illegally. And uh, after that, after maybe six months, I appeal. They accept me, and I start again 
to do interviews. I did almost six interviews. After that, I was approved and they gave me the status of a refugee after two years and a half. And when you were being resettled into the US, typically people tend to get screened based on, for instance, whether um, in the place that they have fled to, they may be discriminated based on religion or ethnicity or sexual orientation or, or have problems with ill health. What was the what was the reason why you had to leave Kenya to, to get into the US? In uh, DRC embassy in Nairobi, they have many people who were uh, tracking people who fled the country. And uh, one period I left my house because I can't sleep there because uh, they come all the time to look for me. And uh, it was so dangerous, maybe. Instead of to repatriate me, they can't kill me or what. I left uh, uh, my home. Uh, that's the main reason I presented to the, the UNHCR and the resettlement agency. They asked so many questions. I tried to explain myself. And they agreed to approve my resettlement. So can we turn to maybe um, your your first 30 days in the US? Just talk us through what it was like landing in the US. Yeah, the time I was in Kenya and uh, they told me, you are going to Boise, Idaho. I couldn't imagine Boise, Idaho is in US. I was thinking maybe it's somewhere else. Because what I know uh, for US is uh, New York, Texas, Dallas, California, those states. But Idaho, it was my first time. When I came, it was uh, around uh, 1 a.m. It was night. Tomorrow at daytime, when I finished to get my breakfast, I went out a little bit to check uh, uh, around, but I was surprised. The first thing is uh, I saw houses without fence, open space. It's so different from where I came from because in my country, all houses have fence built with uh, bricks, mm -hmm. stones, but here, open space, it was, it was funny for me. And in the street, I didn't find anyone. Nobody in the street. Uh -huh. <laughs> ha, what kind of country is this? <laughs> mm -hmm. Where are people? But the, the rare person I was meeting in the street, they were greeting me. And they were, they were smiling. It makes me saying that uh, those people are kind. Maybe it's a very good place to to stay. Let me follow up with something you said um, that I think gets to a deeper point, which is there's there was nobody on the streets in Boise. Yeah, um, mm. and that may seem like you know a, just a big difference between Kinshasa, where you're from, and mm. Boise. Mm. But it also gets at a deeper question of when you don't when you're new to a place and you don't know that place. How do you actually find and make new friends who become your social networks who help integrate, who um, help show you around in new places. The things that we kind of know are so crucial to having a positive experience, not only for refugees, but for immigrants and, and most anybody. How did you actually find people who then became your networks in, in Boise? Yeah, uh, in the morning when I was walking around, I saw a car coming close to me. And I saw inside the car, I saw them, they were black people. 
They ask me, you are new here because it's our first time to see you here. I say, yeah, I came yesterday night. They say, okay, where are you living? I'm living around here at Davis Park. It was the, my first apartment. I say, oh, yeah, me too. I live there. Here is my apartment number. And it's where I discovered the many Congolese people because the guy was a Congolese and the many Congolese came to his place. I was a lucky guy. It was a lucky guy. We're going to a quick break here. We're going to be back soon with Dada Balabuila. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back. You're listening to Displaced with Dada Balabuila. What does the day in the life of a resettlement work at IRC look like? Yeah, we are the one to welcome refugees at the airport. And when we get them there, we have to take them to their housing. I have to schedule appointment for food stamp and Medicaid interview, take them for applying social security. If it's a family with kids, I have to enroll kids in school and enroll parents in English classes. And, and what, are the, what, what are the typical things that go wrong in that process? What are the fires that you fight on a daily basis? We have many challenges with uh, what we are doing. The refugees, when they come here, they, they came with uh, high expectation. But when they reach here, they found things at the contrary of what they heard, where they came from. And the big challenge we have is time. We don't have time. Was that something that you felt yourself as well when you arrived? Hmm? Did you feel like your expectations of what you were going to get were different to what happened? For me, it was a little bit different because uh, um, I knew already what was uh, waiting for me there. Everything will not, uh, will not be easy. I have to work. I have to do this and that. But for other people, me, I stayed in Kenya in the capital city. It's different from people who stay in the camp 20 years. They are in the camp expecting UNHCR to give them food, to give them this, to give them that. They get used to that. When they came here, they continue to think the same thing. So it must be a tricky balance to strike between doing things for people because they may not know how to navigate the system and the bureaucracy, but also getting people to take more, um, encouraging them to take the initiative and be more independent themselves. How, How do you strike that balance? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's something different from uh, one another. Other people cope to the adjustment very fast. But the others, it's very difficult because most of them, they come here without English. You know, English is something very important. But if you don't speak English, your adjustment will take long. So one of the things I find uh, I found surprising about how we resettle refugees typically is that the amount of support that people get is quite short term. So three months of help with housing or employment, then after that you're often relatively on your own. What do you do in those first few months to enable 
refugees to, to be independent and look after themselves beyond that three months? Yeah, you know, the problem is it's a, um, a very difficult part of the resettlement. When refugees uh, come here, the first three months, I think uh, there is no uh, serious problem because they have to be enrolled in a cash assistance. If you start to work, the pocket money fall down. You'll not get them. Maybe you start to work, the money you get from your work, it's not even enough to pay your rent. Now the problem is the refugees come back to the agency to say, I don't have money to pay my rent. And uh, here is my pay stub. I get only per month maybe 800. And my my rent is 1,200. I mean, it feels like, you know, there are two or three different ways of solving that problem. Either you can get refugees into lower cost housing, which means potentially locating them in different parts of the country, or you can pay more of a top up to their earnings, you know, more of a earned income tax credit, for instance, or you can actually try and get them into better paying jobs over the long term and perhaps invest more in their training so that they can get higher paid work. Do we need to be doing all three? What's the right answer? Which one of those is a viable option? Yeah, the problem is uh, we are working uh, we are working based on time. Everything is timing. They are here after eight months, they have to be self-sufficient, which is not possible for all of them. But for example, for someone who came here without English, if he can get a job, what kind of job? She has to get or he has to get. You understand that? And the time is running. After eight months, everything closed. He will be his own. He has to do everything by himself. Mm-hmm. It's so difficult. About housing, to get them low-income housing, it's not something you can get. To, you apply today, you get tomorrow. No. It's something you can It, it can take six months, one year, two, three, four years. To get low-income housing, it's not easy. And the problem is uh, um, we put refugees around where uh, there is a bus route. Mm-hmm. Where there is no bus route, we can't put refugees there. That's why uh, they are confined in an area where housing sometimes becomes very difficult. And uh, the rent, they they increase the rent almost every year. That's the situation we have. Yeah, it it gets at a broader conversation that I think happens in resettlement policy and programming, which is comparing the American model to um, the European model, the Canadian model, and you know the American model and everything you're saying. It, it's just so American, right? You come here and you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you have to get into work early. It's uh, it's it's one of the areas where I think the expectations of what America is like in other countries really differs from what it's actually like in America, where it's like a land of opportunity, where you know it's meritocratic and anybody can do anything. And like in reality, it's like very difficult, particularly if for people who were resettling, you're starting with you know, no local language knowledge or little local language knowledge, little support to get into jobs and the demand that you 
move into a job quickly. Whereas in you know European countries, there's more focus on acquiring language early, re um, getting additional education, recredentialing, and those pieces. Let me ask you this. I know there's a lot of problems that you've been articulating. If you could extend any one of the services for refugees, whether it's employment training, language acquisition, what's the one thing that you think we should double down on in terms of investment? The problem is uh, for refugees, uh, they need more support because uh, um, not to all of them. After eight months, it becomes so complicated. But sometimes... Even after eight months, if we have some fund, we try to help mostly single parents, uh, refugees in serious need. Mostly it's rent. We try to get from the resources or ourselves. If we have something, we have to help to pay for them if we have money. But if we don't have, it becomes a serious problem. Earlier on, Daddy, you mentioned that when you were thinking about coming to America, you didn't have Boise in your mind. You had California or New York or all these other places Mm. that you'd heard of. We obviously know that location matters a huge amount to people's uh, outcomes. I'm just interested in whether you feel that um, when we are resettling refugees, we should incorporate um, their choices and desires about where to resettle more in the process. And, And if so, how can we do that? Yeah, uh, what I know is uh, when uh, uh, they are resettling people, they will ask you, do you know someone in the U.S.? If you say, yes, I know someone, they will ask you his name, his phone number, and his address. The reason they ask that is they want to resettle you where you know someone. But the problem is now, when they ask us, do you know someone in the U.S.? Most of the time we say no, because we are scared. Maybe I say I know someone there, they will not resettle me. <laughs> mm-hmm. You understand the reason? Mm. They will not resettle me if I say I know someone there. Most of the people, they say, I know no one. That's why now they will choose for you where to send you. Most of the time, refugees come here, they have families, friends in Texas, in uh, Minnesota, in Dallas, uh, Nevada, everywhere. But he didn't say. They send him another place. And the time he will reach here, like me, you'll see a refugee. You go to pick him uh, at the airport, started to tell you, oh, I have my brother in, uh, in Las Vegas. I want to go there. Mm-hmm. It's only because he didn't say. Mm-hmm. If he said, I have my brother in Las Vegas, they will send him straight to Las Vegas. And do you, I mean, do you ever see refugees then move quite quickly to be near family? And do you help with that process? Yeah, if most of the time I help many, many, many refugees. They come here just at the airport. They tell you, I have my family uh, in um, in one of the, the states here, I say, okay, no problem. What do you want? Oh, I want to, to, to go and be close to him. I say, okay, when I go to the office, I have to tell my supervisor. Yeah, mm-hmm. the family came, but they want to out-migrate. We can't block them. They are free to go wherever they want to go. But I have to help them. 
The way they came, and we didn't use their RNP money, we helped them to buy flight ticket and let them go. I have to go and uh, drop them at the airport and to let them go. But it's a problem if you come to Boise, after maybe two weeks or three weeks, we have already get an apartment for you. We spend all your RNP money. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, you find out you have a friend or a family somewhere and you want to go there. It will be very difficult because we don't have money to pay for you uh, flight ticket. You have to pay by yourself or your brother, your friend, the one who wants you to go there has to pay for you. If not, you have to stay here, work hard, get money and out migrate if you want. There are a lot of conversations happening right now at UNHCR, DIRC, governments about how to reform and reshape resettlement um, in the coming few years. What's your biggest piece of advice for uh, the policymakers who are thinking about who are thinking about how to reform this? Globally, the problem is uh, resettlement is uh, something not easy. It's uh, so difficult, even for refugees and for people who are resettling refugees. The problem is uh, they have to take into account uh, refugees who who stayed for a long time in a refugee camp. You know, in a refugee camp, you'll find people who are there for 20 years, 25 years. You are born in a camp. You get married in a camp. You get to children in a camp. Everything for you is a refugee. Mm-hmm. They have to take into account these things to help those people. If they can resettle them anywhere, they can go and rebuild their lives because they are like people who are abandoned by themselves. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. And some of them, they don't know even how to get the resettlement. And another thing is here for the resettlement in the U.S. I think the period of time they they gave for refugees to become self-sufficient, it's not enough. It's Mm -hmm. not enough. You'll find some people after eight months, it's like he's here. It's only one month. Because... To cope with adjustment is so difficult. Dad, it's been great getting an insight into what it's like to resettle refugees and some of the really tricky challenges that we're facing now. Thank you so much for being with us on Displaced. Thank you. That was Dad Balabuila, a caseworker for the IRC office in Boise, Idaho. And I think what was really powerful about what Dad explained was that the US system, I think, is very, very good at getting refugees onto the first rung of the ladder. We get refugees into work and into housing very quickly. What's difficult is that perhaps we're not as good at investing in refugees, achieving their full potential and going on to the jobs that they could get. And whereas the European systems that you see invest heavily in education and training and arguably defer entry into work for too long, we have the opposite uh, problem here. And I think the, the policy and research question is what is the optimum amount of investment to put into refugees, um, given that they arguably are not fulfilling their potential now and could potentially get higher wages and more sustainable uh, jobs if we actually invest more up front. 
This is a great transition into a preview of next week's episode, which is going to be with Ahmed Hussein, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship for the Government of Canada. Uh, Canada has a comparatively very different model than the United States and the, and the one that Dowder really talked about today. Um, for their resettled refugees, community members, local sponsors take a much more active role in welcoming refugees, helping them get on their feet, integrating them, finding jobs, accessing education. And it's a really bottom-up way of structuring refugee resettlement. It's going to paint a picture of an interesting contrast and really give a sense of what the contours are on the different models that exist out there and how to think about them. If you want any more on the topics we discussed on the episode today, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org displaced. And remember, you can tweet us at Grant M. Gordon and at Algora Murthy and email us to at displaced at rescue.org. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter with extra help from Jarrett Floyd. Golda Arthur is our senior producer. And Nishat Kurwa is our executive producer of audio at the IRC. Anna Fuhr is our researcher. A special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Strakowski, and Ben Moskowitz. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.